hey, good morning, everybody. Kickoff, indeed. Uh, we are uh, launching a brand new series today. I'm so glad uh, for this day. We've been planning this for quite some time. Um, and, and here's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at uh, the autobiographical statements that God makes about himself in the Bible. And, and then we're going to do something that maybe you've never done in a church before. Maybe it feels like um, really bad to do this in a church. Maybe it doesn't feel like you have permission to do this in a church. We're just going to ask the question, Really? about everything that he says, okay? So uh, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at who God says he is. And then we just want to be the type of people who actually come at it open-handed and say, like, is that really true? Because uh, if it's not really true, then there's better things that we could do with our Sunday mornings, kickoffs, tailgatings, things like that. But if it's actually true, if God actually, what he actually says is true, then there's things we got to do here in our Sunday mornings as well. Um, A lot of us have questions when it comes to faith. Maybe you've uh, followed Jesus for decades. We, we had um, two, two young men uh, in our service, in the first service, get baptized, who are um, 12 years old about. And then Zaya, so, so excited for Zaya getting baptized, so proud of what God's doing in your life, but in, in her early 20s and um, getting baptized. Maybe you were 12 or 20 when you came to faith in Jesus, but now you're like 40 or 50. And over the seasons of your life, the seasons have changed, but maybe your faith hasn't changed since you first came to faith in your early teens or in your 20s. And, and, and now the life situations that you face are way more complicated than the life situations that you faced then. And the faith of your youth doesn't necessarily seem to have answers for the questions of your present. What, what this series is designed to do is to mature those of us in our knowledge of who God is so that the questions we all face today have actual answers of relevance for God's involvement in our lives today. I hope to get you off of autopilot over the next couple of weeks. But for some of us, there is no autopilot because this is a series designed to help you begin thinking about God. Maybe you've got questions. Maybe you've got questions about God that are deep, You understand how complicated the questions that you have about God are, but they're serious questions. And you're just wondering, does anybody take my questions seriously? I want you to know that we take all questions seriously because we believe here church is is, is a community built up of, of the questioners. That that faith is not just coming to God and believing something because someone tells us it's true, but actually faith is built upon the building blocks of doubt. That faith and doubt go hand in hand, and it's okay for us to ask questions. If God is God, he can handle some scrutiny. Somebody say amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, What I want to do is uh, orient us to the first time in the Bible that God gives an autobiographical sketch of who he is. Here's where it is. It's found in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, God has been arguing with this guy named Moses. Moses has been arguing with this guy named God. And and he says, "Um, uh, I need you to prove to me that you truly are God. Can I see you with my own eyes? If I could see you, that would really help. And so God puts him up on a mountain. And then he says, I'm going to send myself to pass by. And as the glory of God is passing by Moses, who, who is so struck with the presence of God that he tries to look but can't even bring himself to look. Here's what Moses hears. God says, the Lord, the Lord. It's almost like his own self-declaration. Kings back in the day had uh, callers who who would call out, hear ye, hear ye. And God himself is calling out to Moses saying, I am the Lord, the Lord who is proceeding by you. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness and rebellion and sin. How many people love that description of God? Two hands in the air if you love that description of God. I mean, that's like one of the greatest descriptions of God. Okay, it keeps going. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh. 
He punishes the children and their children's children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. How many people love that description of God? <laughs> so so um, here's what some of us do in churches that we've grown up, or maybe you've heard your friends uh, try and describe you who, who God is, and something's ringing hollow about it. Uh, we try to take one at the exclusion of the other. There are churches who, who believe that God is just punitive and wrathful, and, and, and you, better, uh, you better get sorted out, otherwise God's going to damn you to hell. That's a church type of idea that's out there. We're not that type of church. Everybody say thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And there are also some churches who are like, well, God is just compassion and grace and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithful and maintaining. I want you to know that we're not that type of church either. Thank you. We're a type of church that wants to take everything that God says about himself seriously. And here's what this does for me. I love this part of God. I'm confused about this part of God. And it makes me wonder, is God really all of this? It's very complicated of God to be so dynamic. It's very complicated of God to, to describe himself. It'd be one thing if like, you know, Billy Graham told us this is what God was like. But these are the words out of the mouth of God himself about who he is. Is God really all of this? And that's where we're going over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, it, it, and we're going to answer some questions of, is God brutal? Is God good? Is God present? And um, I want you to know this. Uh, one of the ways as we do this, just by way of announcement, uh, you should not miss, you should put this on the calendar, September 24th of, of this year. should be on your calendar for two reasons. Number one, it's the day that the Bears come into Arrowhead Stadium. Right, and so that's going to be a thing for the Jacobson family to sort out. Uh, Go Chiefs. All right, I got my Mahomes jersey ready. Kristen, pray for her. Uh, but the second thing, one of us has adapted to Kansas City more than the other. I'll just say it that way. The second thing, uh, September 24th, is a good friend of Heartland, uh, pastor, author, award-winning author, AJ Swoboda, is going to be coming and preaching right here on the stage right here in person. And you should not miss that day. AJ's brilliant. He's phenomenal. He's funny. I love, I love uh, getting to know AJ. Um, a year ago, we did a series um, called Bring Your Doubts. And AJ had just released a book called After Doubt. And the subtitle, I love the subtitle. He says, how to question your faith without losing it. And he's going to come and bring a, just a, a, some, from his world, some examples of, of how to go about this, this curiosity that we have towards God. It's going to be a phenomenal, phenomenal day. That's two Sundays from now. You're going to be here. Everybody say, yep. Okay. Um, I promise that along the way of this series, you do not need to be a philosopher or have a philosophy degree to understand what we're saying, even though today I'm going to talk about a lot of philosophers. Um, in fact, the questions that we have in this series are going to run along the course of our everyday life. And to give you an example of how run-of-the-mill some of these questions are, I want to just tell you about my Monday. Uh, Monday was a, a holiday, and I was uh, on my way driving to a place where I was going to have a morning run, and I threw on a podcast. I listened to, I hope it doesn't surprise you to know that I listened to more than the Bible. And I was listening to two of my favorite SNL uh, comedians, Dana Carvey, and David Spade, they've got a podcast. I don't know if I can recommend it from the stage, so I'm not gonna recommend it from the stage, but I'm just gonna tell you, I was listening, I, I admitted I was listening to Dana Carvey and David Spade, I think they're hilarious. And they were interviewing a former SNL cast member, a woman by the name of Julia Sweeney. She was from the SNL period before my time watching things, so I really don't know who she is. Uh, but she got really deep with David Spade and Dana Carvey because Julia Sweeney's got this whole act right now that she's doing about religion and about the chaos of God. 
And within about seven minutes of listening to this podcast episode on Monday, here's what I heard. I'm going to read you the transcript. This is what Dana Carvey says. He says this. He goes, uh, did I ever believe in a magic God and all that stuff? No. I mean, I never, never bought it. And no one bought it in the Lutheran church, even the pastors, you could tell. <laughs> Julia immediately picks it up. She goes, I fully believe now that everyone, no one really believes it. I mean, like, I think it's about tribalism and history and affection for the ritual and affection for the way of life. And so it's almost like it's useless to try and argue rationally with someone about it. It isn't a rational choice. It's usually you're born into it or you have an emotional thing that makes you join something because it helps your life. And you know, I don't care. That's fine with me, people. This was my Monday, knowing that I was preaching on the question that I was gonna be preaching on today, on Sunday. The question that they're bringing up is just simply this. Is God real? Is God real? How do we know that God is real? And this is, this is what they get into. I, they, they say, Dana goes, he says the quiet thing out loud. He says, uh, nobody really believes this stuff, right? And then Julia spikes it. She goes, nobody really believes it. And my favorite part about what she says, she goes, um, I don't care. Her point is that God isn't real for me, but if you need him to be real to cope with your life, you do you. And isn't that kind of like what you've run up against in your own life when it comes to this question of is God real? Perhaps you yourself have wrestled with some of these same ideas, some of these same theories, some of these same questions that, that isn't it just about who you're born into and, and maybe if I was born in Russia, I believe something different or maybe if I was born in China, I believe something different but I was born in the Bible Belt and so of course I believe that God is real or, or, or maybe you're, you're here and you're like, man, this is all so strange that these people here at Heartland believe this because like this is crazy. You know, if the question uh, here is, is that God is not real, then what we are doing right now is really strange. Can we just acknowledge like, that, that if God is not real, if the, if the answer to this question is no, then you and I maybe have just gotten 52 hours of our year back for Sunday morning tailgating. Because if, if God isn't real, um, then it's really weird to show up on a Sunday, stand in rows and sing. Do you know what that looks like? That looks like a cult. And it's really weird that our preferred means of communication is, some people call it teaching, some people call it communicating, but in its purest form is preaching, which is the lowest form of communication in our society since Madonna sang that song, Papa, Don't Preach. And if God isn't real, then what we're doing in baptism should really just be called waterboarding. <laughs> this question matters not just for how we spend our time on a Sunday morning. It matters for how we spend our everyday life. And I appreciate the observations that Dana and Julia bring, but I'm not satisfied with their conclusions, partly because the Bible actually says the same exact thing that they said, but it comes to a different conclusion itself. Unsurprisingly, the Bible asserts most forcefully that God is real. Um, here's what one of the uh, New Testament letters to one of the earliest followers of Jesus says. It's by the person who wrote Hebrews. It says, faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
Like, like the whole premise of faith has to be anchored to something. And that anchoring of the Christian faith is the fact that we believe God is real. Are we crazy? And, and the atheist will say, yes, you're crazy because of that first part, it tells you everything we've been trying to tell you is that you have what's called blind faith. Your faith is confidence in what you hope for, assurance about things that you do not see. And it's led a lot of people to go, well, if, if faith is in something that I can't see, then this is blind faith and nobody wants to have blind faith. Um, there's that show on Netflix. This is not in my notes. I shouldn't talk about this, but it's a show called Love is Blind. We all want to believe that the things that we're blind to can have a positive impact in our life. But here's the, the dirty secret of that show. Hardly any of those people have great relationships. We find out that love is not blind. That there's a part of it that you can base upon uh, emotional things as a part of the superficial physicals. But at some point, we have to have something deeper for us than just the invisibility of something. So our question is this. Is our faith blind. And the record of the New Testament is designed actually to tell us absolutely not. Our faith is, uh, is, is those who were blind who now see. I mean, I could go anywhere in the Bible to talk to you about this, but um, I'm just going to go to the Gospel of John. John wrote, uh, lived with Jesus. He was the guy that followed him around. John is even the guy that um, Jesus called him the one that I love the most. That's like a really braggadocious title, but that's who John is. John wrote 20.4% of the New Testament. John's kind of a big deal in our earliest forms of faith. And John wrote this about uh, Jesus in John chapter one. He says that nobody has ever seen God. John chapter one, I think it's verse 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. He says, but that's okay because Jesus shows us what God is like. And John's point is that the existence of Jesus points to the existence of God because everything the God of the Old Testament said he would do came true when Jesus was born, when Jesus lived, when Jesus died, and when Jesus rose from the dead. And to cap it all off, at the end of John's gospel, he writes this. He, he says in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, but these are written, essentially like, hey, everybody, I didn't just want to tell you nice bedtime stories about this guy named Jesus. I wrote these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have his life in his name. I want you to see, John saying, that we have evidence. We've seen him. We've, we, first, John says, the things that we've talked about and touched and felt and experienced and seen with our own eyes, we pass along to you. Our faith is not blind. I could go around the entire Bible and show you how God's existence is proven on every single page of the Bible. But to do that would kind of be what I would, I would be accused very quickly of being uh, what's called preaching to the choir. Let me tell you. There are some days in my line of work where preaching to the choir sounds like a good gig. But I want better for us. I want better for us than just repeating some dead religious talking points and some verses that maybe people debate. I want you to know that unless you take seriously the claims of God in his word because it is so fiercely, or, or fiercely arguing for the existence of God, you will never, unless you take this seriously and find that this is lacking, you'll never be able to simply conclude in your own heart whether or not God is real. But I, I think we can get there uh, through a couple different means today. The historical account of the Bible tells us that God exists, but there are more arguments in our world that don't necessarily rely just on the Bible for us to see. 
that God exists. And just for a couple of minutes, in the next like six minutes, I want to just walk you through a couple thousand years of human reflection about the idea of God. How about that? Would that be worth your time? Six minutes for a thousand years worth of reflection. Okay, let's start all the way back with Aristotle. I watched Princess Bride last night, and um, there's that little guy with the Iocane powder who's like, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, morons. Not morons, all right? Aristotle tried to get at this question. He looked around the world and he, he said, you know, people are answering this question of, is there a God? Which God is real? Are, is there any God? And he said, well, I'm struck at the most base level by this one simple question. Why is there anything instead of there being nothing? This was Aristotle's starting point. He said, why is there anything instead of there being nothing? You would think that if there was no God, there would be no things. And it's like um, if you were walking to my house and you uh, would walk around my home, you would notice all around our house there are little places where my kids have taken, you know, printer paper just like this and have, you know, they make their own books, they write their own stories, they illustrate their own stuff, they make comic strips. But it all is, is kind of like in the hand of a six-year-old. And you could look, walk around my house and, and even if you didn't see the kid there, you would see evidence that a child lived in my house. Just by the virtue of there being childly things, you would look at me and say, how old are your kids? That would be an appropriate evaluation of the evidence that you would have walked into. And that's Aristotle's point. He goes, there's something here, there's not nothing. We would expect if there was no God there to be nothing, but there's something. What does that, what does that mean? Another philosopher a couple hundred years later, a guy named Thomas Aquinas, he was a real dude a long time ago, not just the inventor of a high school. In case that was confusing. He followed Aristotle's thinking and he asked the question. He said, um, since there is something, where did the something come from? And this is a very normal question that you and I have today, but this was made very, it was profound thought from, from Aquinas. And so if you and I, Aquinas didn't have this way of thinking, but we can apply his reasoning to it. If you and I just assume, just, just for a moment, I don't know where you are on this debate, I don't really care to have the debate, but if you just assume that there was a big bang millennia, you know, millennia ago, if you assume that you must have a moment, regardless of where, uh, of regress, where our resources expire, that's what I want to say. You got to go back that time where something had a starting point. That something had to come from somewhere. And this is called the theory of first causes. Richard Dawkins, who kind of represents this old school atheism, despite himself being a part of what's called new atheism, um, he admits that this first cause question is somewhat of a problem for atheists. In Dawkins' mind, here's what he said. He said, um, and he wrote this in The God Delusion, he said, Darwinian evolution is a reliable means of biology. So he, he believes that Darwinian evolution explains how life evolved once it was on earth. But he said, where the materials for life came from, we're not sure. And he said, we're lacking a theory for why there's anything in the world at all. And he said, quote, cosmology is still waiting on its Darwin. He's saying that we need some theory to explain how the trick of the stuff appearing even appeared. I once heard uh, Pastor J.D. Greer put it this way. I'm not sure if he made this up or, or what, but I heard it from him. He, he put it this way. He said that nothing times nobody cannot equal everything. 
that if you just take this on face value, nothing times nobody cannot possibly result in everything that you and I see. And Greer points out that Dawkins is committing the same textbook example of what he accuses Christians of committing a blind leap of faith. That's called the cosmological argument. You're welcome. That's like a fancy word. You don't need to remember it. Just remember, nothing times nobody cannot equal everything. There's another argument that's explained by another atheist by the name of Stephen Hawkins. He once noted about the um, consistent ratios that he found embedded within the natural world, that our universe has mathematical equations that are that are so precise that the precision of these equations and the ratios led him to believe that our, our universe was, so here's his words, finely tuned for the flourishing of human life. This was, a, uh, Stephen Hawking said this, and as Christians, we were all waiting for him to say the next thing, which would have been that fine-tunedness leads us to believe that this could only be the result of intelligent design. But he'd never said that. And I don't blame him for not saying that, but I do want to understand the fact that when he said that, all of us who have faith in God said, that's a great argument that we're going to adopt for our own side. And so we call this the finely tuned argument. We get this from, uh, from, from, from Stephen uh, Hawkins. And here's the argument, that this is not some happenstance universe, a statistical prob- improbability that somehow became probable. Uh, we're not just lucky to be on the multiverse that actually has the ingredients necessary for life. No, actually this world was created to sustain life, pointing to a creator. The finely tuned argument is like the Goldilocks theory, that the world is not too hot, not too cold, not too close, not too far. Everything here is just right to have humans flourish. Life exists. Um, I won't make you say that's true, but you know that's true, you're living. And that might be the first evidence for God's existence. But the fact that our world seems to be so advantageous for humanity's flourishing makes it seem like the reason life exists is for human flourishing, and that's the goal of creation. And there's an endless supply of scientific examples that I'm going to share with you just right now because they're going to help you understand this. And you might, if you're like me, an anxious person, you might lose sleep at night over these things. Um, Sorry. Here's the first one. Our, ap- our, our atmosphere is made up of multiple um, different elements, but one of which is oxygen. You know that. And, and uh, if, if the percentage shift in our atmosphere were to lose just a, a couple percentage points of oxygen, what would happen is the entire atmosphere would burn up and you and I would die. You're welcome. This was the calculation that Oppenheimer had to make when he was building the bomb. If I blow this thing up, will it start a chain reaction that gets the atmosphere? Will I reduce the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere by enough percentage points? And if you watch the movie or if you know the story, it was a non-zero chance that that could have happened. Um, Okay, so that's one thing. Uh, Did you know that if the earth was 2% closer to the sun, all of the earth's water would evaporate? And guess what? We would all die. Okay, you're not following me yet. Do you know that our Earth is on a, an axis? It's not, it doesn't spin perfectly. It's actually tilted 23.5 degrees. And that's perfect because 23.5 degrees allows the, the perfect temperature for the poles to be super cold and the middle to be a perfect vacation destination. 
But there's also a reason that 23.5 degrees on an axis is actually advantageous for us is because it maintains temperature and tides. That actually if the earth was tilted this way or this way, any degree, that life on earth would, would actually become way too hot, global warming all aside, it would become way too hot, and, and actually we would all You're getting it. How about this? Did you know that water is so unique that it's the only molecule whose solid form is actually less dense than its liquid? So when it freezes, ice floats. We love this in our drinks. It's a wonderful thing. But if that weren't true, if, if, if water were somehow just like every other molecule, where the solid form of it is more dense than its liquid, then ice would sink. And that may sound fine for your water in the summertime, but it would be atrocious for glaciers. We would fall to the bottom of the Earth's seas, literally freeze the globe from the bottom up, and guess what? We would all... I love this church. It's so morbid. I could keep going. There's YouTube videos all about this. I would encourage you just to kind of go into your own rabbit hole on it. The point is that this is not lucky. There's a finely tunedness to our existence. That's, that's the finely tuned argument. And the last one is just this. It's, it's, it's the scientific community around us has given us those two. And then here's one that we see from anthropology. Um, as people have asked the question, why uh, or does God exist? Um, there, there's been a, a, a pointing out that humans are the only species in the world that possess morality. A, a true full conscience. And um, here's how I want to just kind of describe to you the moral argument. Have you ever watched on National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, um, have you ever watched a shark that has attacked anything? Shark Week, when sharks attack, you've watched it. It's amazing. Here's what you don't see afterwards. You don't see a shark, a great white shark, swimming to the bottom of the ocean feeling sorry for itself that it attacked anything. Have you ever seen a lion just tear apart a zebra in the middle of a safari? Maybe you've watched one of those documentaries and it's got like fur in its teeth, you know? What you don't see is the lion going back to the backside of the safari and sitting in the corner crying about what he'd done again. That woe is him, he's got this instinct to just kill and he can't get rid of it. Why does a lion, okay, you guys are so far away. Let me go, let me get to your backyard. Has your dog ever killed a bunny? <laughs> Has your dog ever killed a bunny in such a way where he brought the bunny to you and then looked up at you, put his tongue out of his mouth and smiled? <laughs> Had like 12 of those this year. No, why does a dog do that? Because it's in their instinct to do that. And, and, and do you ever see a dog feeling shamed about that? Well, no. Why is it that when I get behind the wheel of a car, and in my neighborhood drive in the center of the street and a squirrel runs out in front of my car and my car does that thing where it goes, doo -doo, and I, I feel like I, I just ended life. And my soul, okay, I didn't do that right. It actually goes, doo -doo, doo -doo. <laughs> now you're with me. Why is it, here's a real question. Why is it that deep in my heart, I feel some sort of sense of loss for a natural animal that I didn't mean to hit that I actually killed? I mean, that's just an accidental suburban squirrel homicide. There's way worse things that you and I do that we have to reckon with. 
Have you ever wondered why do we have a conscience? Where did the idea of a conscience come from? If we're so evolutionarily evolved, was the conscience a thing that we've never evolved out of? Because it seems irrelevant if there is no God. In fact, it doesn't even just seem irrelevant to me. It seems like torture. Like we are torturing ourselves and our evolutionary species if the conscience is something that we're still hanging on to. Because our consciences are things that we are trying so hard these days to shed. Why is it that you and I have the ability to distinguish right and wrong? And why do we do this on a massive global scale so that when we see national conflicts, we all make moral decisions or judgments? This was uh, famously brought to light by uh, a man named C.S. Lewis, who back in the 1940s, in the midst of World War II, was, was, was giving lectures over the radio about God. They were compiled into a book called um, uh, Mere Christianity. And here's one of the things that he says. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. And a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was not made for this world or I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, suggesting the real thing. The real thing that Lewis is pointing us to is the fact that there is a morality above the earth. That that conscience that exists inside of each and every one of us is awaiting a day when it will finally be appeased in another world. That there is one who can rule as the just lawgiver over all and your conscience bears witness to the fact that that's coming. And that's C.S. Lewis's point, is that our morality leads us to see that we were created with a will we're different than other beings on the planet in this, in this whole entire known universe. And so those are three arguments. Let me just ask you this one simple question. Is God real? Well, I just gave you a lot of scientific, philosophical, and moral evidence to lead to a probable yes. But listen, I'm not ready for you to take off yet because there's a deeper question. If all the evidence is really pointing to a probable yes, why doesn't everyone believe in God? Have you ever wondered about that? If everything is kind of pushing us towards like, yes, there is something. Yes, I do feel that in my heart. And yes, I, I do know that there's a right and wrong. And I wish I could be free from that, but I can't be free from that. In my heart, it's hard to be free from that. Why? Why can't this be simpler? Why doesn't everybody believe? The answer comes, surprisingly, from Julia Sweeney, who I quoted earlier in this message, the woman who was talking to Dana Carvey. Here's what Julia Sweeney said. I'll put it on the screen for you. She goes, it's almost like it was useless to try to argue rationally with someone about faith. Faith isn't a rational choice. This is where Julia and I have a lot to agree upon. Because here's who we are. We are rational beings who take our rational beingness and act irrationally. Isn't that one of the most infuriating parts of being a human? Is that you can know all the facts about something and still choose to do the thing that the facts are leading you to do not. You, you can try and, and work your way out of something by knowing enough about it, but then, but then you actually go and do the thing that your decision said you should avoid. We've examined a couple arguments that lead us to conclude the existence of God is rational, but faith, it's more than a matter of the mind. And this is really uncomfortable for all of us. 
especially those of us who, who have degrees and postgraduate degrees, you're like, well, I can think my way out of anything. But faith is not the mind, listen, listen, faith is not the mind finding certainty. Faith is the mind materially coming to grips with the immaterial. I'll say it this way so that you can understand it. Faith isn't a matter of reason. It's a matter of emotion. Faith is not a matter of the mind. Faith is a matter of the heart. We often believe if I could just know the right answers to the questions, if I could just get enough evidence in front of me, I would be certain that God is real. And I want to tell you, you have all the certainty, all the evidence that you need to make this decision, but there's something else barricading you, something else blocking you in the way. And here's my, my task today is just to show you who that person is. It's not Jesus. It's not the Bible. It's not your parents. The person who's keeping you from faith you. Faith is always leveled. This is such good news for postmoderns. Faith is always leveled in the individual personal element of our hearts. You say, Dan, that sounds impossible. Isn't faith reasonable? And I want to say, yes, faith is reasonable. The fact that faith is a matter of a heart does not mean that faith is not reasonable. It just means that reason isn't always the beginning of faith. And that kind of helps us be honest about who we are as people. We aren't always compelled by the evidence to assess reality correctly. In judicial theory, there's a term for this. It's called cognitive um, bias confirmation. It's a devastating element of litigation psychology that can prevent someone for, from being an independent third party to an event from hearing from both sides what happened. This has been noted time and time again over 100 plus years in our judicial system on cases involving racial bias where ju ju uh, juries will hear pretty solid evidence about what happened in the case, but because of the race of one person or another, they will reject a verdict of innocence based on their own existing beliefs. The evidence was strong but not strong enough to overcome their preconceived notions. For most of us, we actually have very strong preconceived notions about God. A lot of us think, you know, God is magic. I don't know where we picked this up. I don't know if it was watching too much Aladdin when we were kids. I don't know what it was that made us think that God is this genie in the clouds and if we just, you know, rub the lamp the right way, he'll give us three wishes and then our lives will be perfect. But for most people living in Kansas City, I run into them and they think that God is magic. God, just like Dana Carvey said, God is magic. He's in the clouds and he's magic. That's not what God says at all. He didn't say, the Lord, the Lord, magical creator of the universe. Itty bitty living space. He didn't, he didn't say that. No. For most of us, we look at God and we just go by our own experience. Our own experience is, is really what we all use as a measure of God's existence. And I'm gonna give you a couple criteria that I think we measure God against. I'm gonna give you four different elements. I'm not gonna put them on the screen because they're too sarcastic and too cutting for you to hear and remember. I'm just gonna say them and then you're gonna go, ooh, ouch. And, and I'm gonna put a band-aid on it, okay? 
But in Kansas City, I've learned over the past couple of years talking to people, here's the way that we think and experience the reality and the existence of God. We believe God is real if a couple conditions are met. Number one, today is better than yesterday. I believe that God exists if my life is getting better. And that could look like the date that I went on last night was better than the other date that I went on with the person and we're leading towards marriage and that's gonna be a beautiful thing and we're gonna have kids and all this stuff and the white picket fence and all the things. But today is better than yesterday. Number two, my paycheck is bigger than yesterday. I've got the job that pays me more money so I can afford the things and I can finally get the Tesla supercharger because I really like that one instead of the other one. The other one was not the good, but I really, really need the other things because the new things are better. I need a bigger paycheck. I talk to so many people who feel blessed by God when they get a raise. I think that's appropriate, but I'm curious what happens when you lose your job. What happens when the job that you started ends up being a dumpster fire? What happens when you've got to actually move on from your promised job and find another job and it's not as good? Number three, um, I'll follow God, he's real, if I have a surprising medical turnaround. Zaya's story of being in a car accident really caught me this week because I love what she said. It's so honest. She, she says, um, I, I walked away from this car accident unscathed. She, she was so honest. Thank you for your honesty. She goes, she goes and I, you would have thought that I would have leaned further into God. She goes, but I was angry. I was angry. You see, when we actually experience the blessings of health, we don't always take it to mean that God is real. And the fourth one, maybe the hardest one, and I, I don't mean disrespect by this, but this is, this is weird to me, this one. So we believe there's a God. If our team wins the next Super Bowl. I wrote that on Monday, by the way. I know the sense of depression on Friday was palpable. You already wrote, wrote off the season. Kelsey's hurt. Where is God? Can you not feel the absurdity of all this? But, but listen, I'm just trying to come to our regular level with all these things. This is what we believe. This is how we make these assessments and these assumptions. Our conclusions on God are based upon our own superficial things. And it's an us thing. It's a center of our universe. All of us are trying to reconcile our personal experience and our personal existence, which feels like we're the center of the universe and to concede ultimate authority and ultimate control of my life over to this invisible God, it feels in my heart way too risky, too vulnerable, and I'm not sure I can trust this God anyway. That's the emotional barrier that every single one of us has to cross at some point if we believe God is real. The problem is not in our minds. The problem is also in our hearts. We're biased. And until we confront our biases towards God, we'll never be able to understand God, nor, and this is even more dangerous, we won't ever be able to understand ourselves. See, um, there's a, uh, an interview online with Francis Collins, who was the former head of the Genome, Human Genome Project. He described his shift from atheism to Christianity as one in which he actually resisted and in the midst of all of his scientific investigations, he was seeing evidence mounting for God. The writings of C.S. Lewis, he says, were helping him mount evidence for God. But he said as the evidence mounted, God became more real. He said he had to get over the one simple fact that what was ultimately stopping him was that he didn't want there to be a God. All the scientific knowledge, all the mathematical knowledge, all the facts in front of him 
And he said, noting the foolishness of that reason, I finally embraced faith. And in his words, faith became more rational to me than for atheism. Friends, what keeps you from believing in God? I think it's our own emotions. And that's why I think this thing with Moses and God is really good news for us. Started in Exodus chapter 34, but if you go forward or backwards in the Bible towards Exodus 4, there's this other moment that God shows up to Moses and has this experience with him. He, he says, um, Moses, come over here. Moses walks over. There's a bush that's lit on fire. God, he hears God's voice giving him instructions to bring about freedom and justice for the Hebrew people. And God's biggest instruction is to go and command the commander. Go walk into Pharaoh's court and tell him what to do. Specifically tell him, release your slaves and retire your construction projects. And Moses, who, by the way, has killed an Egyptian man in his past, he's got a record, he, um, he goes, God, I don't think that's a great idea because I don't want to lose my own life. He, he realizes I got a speech impediment, I got a record, and the source of this command is a bush that was on fire. I kind of feel like I need a higher authority here. Can you help me know when they say who sent me, who can I appeal to as the higher authority? And God looks at Moses, or I guess he looks at him, uh, you know, anthropomorphically, but God says to Moses, he goes, he goes, Moses, the name that you can use for me, the name that I want you to know about myself in, in the midst of your own fear and your own insecurity and your own emotionalism, tell them that I am that I am. It's a bogus, we can't translate it into, into, into English from the Hebrew. I am that I am. Tell them that the I am sent you. But Moses, I, I know that you're emotionally afraid and I'm not gonna try and logically persuade you into why you should do this thing. I'm just gonna meet you in the midst of your emotional curiosity and say that the presence of God who is alive and who is, is with you. Says you're afraid, Moses? It's okay, I'm with you. You can't see around the bend into the future? That's okay, I'm here right now. And I'll be the am in the moment when the moment becomes right now. As long as it is, I am. God's name, his very name declares his existence, that he is never not existing, that you can't go to the will be where he's not already I am, and you can't go to the was then where he's not still I am. That God in his amness and his isness, it's a word now, is infinitely present. This is why I said you can't make this decision without actually reading the whole story. Because God says, hey, <laughs> Rene Descartes said it this way, I think therefore I am, and, and, and it really says more about God than it does about us, um, because yeah, you are, because God is. That's really what he says. So here, here's where I'm putting the plane today. Is God real? Only if this life is real. And if this life is real, then logically you can say that, yes, the evidence leads to the fact that God is. But I think more than that, you, like Moses, can say to God, I know this, but I don't feel this. God, can you get me out of my own way so I can experience this freedom and this justice that you promise me? Because you are a God of justice, aren't you? That's the topic we're going to bring about next week. Today, as we leave, um, I want to help us take this from the land of living in rational thought. And how do we get rational thoughts down deep into our hearts? I want to just give you three steps very quickly. The first is this. this. 
we gotta acknowledge our bias. Acknowledge your bias. For some of us, we've never actually wondered why do we have the faith structures that we have? It would be great for us to wonder today, was I raised in a family that was antagonistic towards God? Did I just inherit the biases that preceded me? Uh, my story, I was raised in one of the most religious families in the Midwest. I'm a fifth generation pastor, for goodness sakes. You don't get more religious than me. And I remember uh, walking through high school realizing, am I only a Christian because everyone else in my family is a Christian? And I had to acknowledge my bias that I was leaning towards saying there is a God, but that wasn't enough for me. I had to actually get from my head to my heart. And I had to acknowledge, why do I start from that place? It's because of my family. I don't know what your biases are. But the first point towards having some sort of certainty or some sort of confidence in the hope that you have, whether there is a God or not, is to acknowledge your bias. The second is to, you know, uh, simply just consult and consider all the evidence. Some people have never actually seen what God has to say about himself. And so whether you start a Bible reading plan that takes you through the next five years slowly, just read the Bible. There's so many questions we're going to go through that the Bible answers, the questions that um, people today have, like, is God vengeful? Is God mean? Is God far away? They're all described and answered right here in the Bible. But some of us, we just live in this information superhighway day and age where we've never actually considered the evidence. I'd love for you to consider the evidence over the next couple of weeks. There's a, there's a quote. I'll read it right now. Madeline uh, Langle, she wrote Wrinkle in Time. She says, those who believe they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, they believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. My encouragement to you is don't just believe in the idea of God. Examine and consider the sources. See it for yourself. And then finally, it's, it's just simply this. Um, explore the heartbeat of Jesus. If you want to know, John said it this way, no one's seen God except Jesus makes him know. If you want to know who God is and what he's like, I want to invite you to midweek. Midweek is just a place where people of faith and people who have no faith can get together and sit down around the table and be kind, civilized, caring humans and can also just take seriously these questions that we have. We're the type of church where if you're a skeptic, you don't believe, you are absolutely welcomed. In fact, that's what we've built this place for, is a place for anyone to bring their questions and to have an open-handed dialogue. We're not going to try and shame you into following Jesus. We're not going to try and prove our point uh, over you in midweek. We're actually just going to want to sit around a table and listen to you and, and hope that you would listen to other people and ask good questions and ask questions of one another. Midweek is a great place for us to explore the heart of Jesus, not just the idea of Jesus, but the heart of Jesus. Here's why. It's because at the end of the day, this is who we are. We are explorers of the way of Jesus. His way points us to the living God who I believe indeed is real. I think Dana Carvey might have been right about the type of church that he grew up in, but he's wrong about Heartland. This is a place where people truly believe the miraculous, that there is a God and that he's real. And this is what I pray comes to you by faith this week. We'll see you, Harlan, next week for week number two. You don't want to miss it.